And if you do me a favor, if you have your Bible with you, open to Psalm 1. Go ahead, Doug. Or I will read a version of it for you. (laughs) Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But the blessed person's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Not so the wicked. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, and they will not, the sinners will not sit with the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. World voice. I'm just. <laughs> Doug Lape has the best in a world voice. You know that guy in a world where he's. It's great. <clears throat> Amen. Let's let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you this morning for your grace. We thank you for your word. Thank you for everything you've done in our lives. We thank you most of all this morning for the fact that you, through your word, enable us to delight in you, that you, through your word, have revealed to us about yourself, who you are, how we relate to you, how we relate to each other, how we live our lives. And God, I ask this morning that you would somehow, through your word, open it up into our hearts, God, that somehow you would illuminate it to us in such a way that we would be changed, that we would be capable of relating to you differently, that we would be capable, through your word, of of relating to each other in the way that you've designed us to, and that somehow, God, we would live lives the way you've designed us to live them. Ultimately, God, that you'd be worshipped, that you'd be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, welcome again to Renovation Church, week two in our new place. What do you think? Pretty decent? Go ahead, clap. We're continuing this series that Mike started last week called Our Hope. And as me and Mike and Paul and Tim thought through this and as we met together um, to talk about what we would do as we're in this new place and how we would kick off the next few weeks, we thought, let's talk about what we really hope for. What is our hope in Scripture? What is our hope for you? What is our hope for us as this church is now in this new area, in this new place? And uh, as Mike articulated last week, he really talked about the fact that this place isn't the building, right? This place is this area. Who has God put us around? What people surround our lives? And how can we live in such a way that we reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around us? And, and Tim's going to talk next week um, about some things that are on Tim's heart in terms of in terms of our hope and mission and what God's called us to do as a church. And this week, kind of sandwiched in between Mike and Tim, I get an opportunity to talk to you about Psalm 1. And the reason Psalm 1 is the passage that I thought of when 
when we talked about what would we like to communicate in terms of our hope is because I really hope for each of us in this place as a family to live lives that are fundamentally happy. To live lives that are fundamentally, not circumstantially, but fundamentally blessed. And I see in scripture that that's God's hope as well. How many times in the word of God does it say, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed is the man? I should have counted before I came up here today, and I would have been able to tell you. But it's, it's often, blessed is the man who, blessed is the man who. And what I recognize from the word of God is that God understands, because he made us, right? God understands that, that there's a desire within us to be truly blessed, to be truly, really what that word means, truly fundamentally happy. To, to be truly happy, God understands he made us that way, and that's a desire of our heart. And, and there's a particular way in which that happens. Now, for the last couple hundred years, I was actually reading Dr. Keller, Dr. Tim Keller on this, and, and I was listening to some stuff he was saying about this, and I found it to be interesting because he's a smart, if anybody's ever listened to Tim Keller or read any of his books, he's one of those guys that just um, gets historically philosophy and, 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 and systems of thought that have happened throughout history. And, and as we've been told the last couple of hundred years, really, in this modern age, we live in a modern age. And when you, when you ask yourself, what does that mean? What is a modern age? We're talking about, you know, French Enlightenment, German idealism, all colliding a couple hundred over in the 1800s. And, and for the last couple hundred years, we've been informed by this system of thinking. And we really believe that through empirical investigation and human effort, somehow we're going to figure out how to be happy. I think that's true about us. And we've been told that the last couple hundred years. And so there's this idea that through our own initiative and investigation, we're in and of ourselves on our own, we're going to figure out how to live lives that are happy lives. And I have a question this morning. How are we doing? Thanks, Doug. <laughs> how are we doing? There's an unprecedented disdain in a modern age for the ancient. As I was reading Tim Keller... And quoting him again, he mentions this idea that there used to be a time when we valued the wisdom of the older folks, when we valued the wisdom of history. And in our modern age, there's an unprecedented disdain for that. And really, if you think about it, or if you ask yourself the question, are we happier today? Now, I gotta be honest. There's some things that make me circumstantially happy. I love this thing. Who's with me? Come on. We have, we have cured some, some really uh, awful things. I think we're better in regards to uh, huge systematic problems like slavery worldwide. I think we're better in terms of, uh, in terms of the ability uh, to cure really bad worldwide ills. I think we're, we're more conscious about hunger and we're more conscious about a lot of those things through our empirical investigation, through our human effort. I think technologically, we have made ourselves more comfortable. I talked to my car all weekend. I was in Albany for my daughter's uh, volleyball tournament. I had no idea where I was going. We're going from hotel room to different sports, sporting facilities in Albany. And all I did is go like this, Siri, tell me how to get to this address. And she was like, okay. Here you go. And she told me how to, it's amazing, right? Come on, is anybody else with me? I love it. If I get in an argument with my wife about what actor was in what movie, I can immediately prove her wrong. 
by grabbing my phone and looking at this thing. And the only reason I say that is because she's in Albany right now. <laughs> so don't tell her. But I can. I enjoy the comforts of what we've been able to get through. But are we fundamentally changed? Are we fundamentally happier? I think you could make an argument that we're not. If you look at the letters and the writings of people back in the day, they did not have uh, they did not have health care. They didn't get vacations. They didn't have um, the political freedoms that we have today. But I think you can make an argument that they're not, as you read what they wrote in those times, um, I'm not trying to make an argument either way, but, but I think you can see in terms of fundamental happiness, there's not as much self-pity. There's not as much boredom. I was a youth pastor in Boston for years in a very, very affluent area outside the city of Boston. And it struck me as I met with these students week after week after week for four years that they are among the top 1% wealthiest people on the planet. They have everything they could ever desire. These kids had Xbox. They had clothes. They had their houses. They had their own bathrooms. Um, they had, you know, like these kids had their own ensuite in most of their houses, right? I mean, these kids live lives with no concept of what it would mean uh, to, to, to want for anything. And yet I'm sitting with these young people who are miserable. They're bored. They're shoving metal things through their face to look good. They're cutting themselves because they're hurting. I got cutters in my youth group. I'm like, you have everything you could ever want. What is the matter inside of you? What's going on inside of you that's so messed up? And what I've realized as I look at Psalm 1 is that the answer to this question has been God's answer in his word for millennia. What does it mean to be the blessed man? Because that's my hope for you, to be blessed. What does it mean? How do we get it? Is it our own empirical investigation and effort that gets us there? I don't think that's true. Now, as we look at Psalm 1, I'm going to take the first couple of verses and that comparison from the person who sits in the seat of scoffers or, or hangs out with sinners as opposed to the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord. I'm going to save that for later. I want to talk to you about that. But first, I want to take a look at this picture of the tree. Isn't this a beautiful picture? I have it on my phone. You probably can't see it. It's from my coffee cup. Jared, you know. From my coffee cup, it's this tree with its roots going down, and it's got Psalm 1 on it. And I've been thinking about this for over a month as I've been contemplating and just, just, just letting myself just seep in this passage. And so I stuck this picture of the tree on my phone. And I want you to think about the picture of a tree for a moment because this is the picture that the Word of God gives us about a blessed man. And I love the Psalms because as you look at this most ancient of, of writings, the Psalms, as you look at the, in particular, Psalm 1, which is the gateway to all of the Psalms, and it's really the, the passage that, that prepares us to read the rest of the Psalms that really are meant to be read as songs or poetry. You know, not necessarily the way you read the Psalms and interpret the Psalms is a little different than a letter or a theology-rich um, book like Romans or Galatians. This is really meant to invoke emotion in response to us as we gain truth, response to the truth from the Word of God. And as you look at this picture in this poem or in this song of Psalm 1, you see this tree that's rooted right next to a stream. And its roots are driven down into the ground where it continually has a source of life. It has a source of water underneath it. But as you look at this picture of a tree whose leaf does not wither, this is a tree that goes through seasons. Am I right? 
And I think one of the mistakes for us as people is that we seek fundamental happiness. We seek to be blessed from circumstances, don't we? Come on, circumstantially, we want to be happy. And I think one of the things that Psalm 1 teaches us is, and this is a, this is a staggering statement, happiness is possible. Anybody that thinks that's a trite thing to say, you're wrong. <laughs> well, we're born in such a way where we probably idealistically as young people believe it's possible, right? And then as you get older, what happens? You, you begin to realize it's not as easy as you thought it was. And most of us are somewhere in between that, on that particular journey of happiness is possible and people as a young person, people that aren't happy just screwed up somehow, to getting into a place of more wisdom and, 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 and honestly more cynical, right? So you got the person that believes it's possible, you got the person that's incredibly cynical, but listen, there's a third person and that's the person who understands fundamental happiness as described in scripture, and we can understand today that because of the word of God, because of what God tells us, he desires us to be blessed, and it's possible. Think about this. We seek it in circumstances, don't we? We go after it circumstantially. But look at this tree. Look at the picture of this tree. It goes through seasons. It goes through uh, winters. It goes through windstorms. It goes through scorching heat. And when those moments happen... As Paul said, I'm, I'm down, but I'm not crushed. As those moments happen in the life of this picture of the blessed man in the life of this tree, when difficulty happens, the roots reach down underneath into something that gives life, and its leaf does not wither. It is not crushed. It's not destroyed. And so listen, folks, please hear me as I talk about this. This isn't about some phony, silly Christian, you know, just smile and tell everybody something's great. That is incredibly unbiblical. That is not what the word of God is talking about. What it's talking about is someone who can go through difficulty, someone who can go through tragedy, someone who can go through something incredibly hard through any season of life. And because you're not drawing your happiness from what's happening outside of you, you're drawing it from something that's underneath, something down deep, where you dig into the word of God and you draw life from it, and you have an ability to have that joy the Bible talks about that is beyond your ability to understand because you're getting it from the life-giving river of the word of God and not from what's happening to you on the outside. Does that make sense? Circumstantial happiness. You're, you're like the tree that's rooted in the ground and not like chaff that has no root. So when the wind blows, it, it just goes wherever the wind takes it. How many of you guys know people like that? Circumstantial happiness. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about fundamental, blessed, fundamentally blessed, fundamentally happy. Not, not something on the outside, but something from underneath. Not about looking good. Not about smiling. Not about just waving on just a happy fake bull. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something rooted down deep that no matter what happens, your roots. In fact, this kind of joy is triggered by tragedy. This kind of joy is triggered by difficulty. You get to know this joy as you go through tough times, and you got to dig your roots down deeper into the Word of God and into who He is. Amen? That's what the blessed man is talking about. The reality is people seek it the wrong way. Fundamental happiness isn't superficial. And I think our first, 
mistake in life is we seek happiness in a superficial way, don't we? We seek it in a way that, that is just temporary. And, and we, we make it the object of our affection. We make it our goal to go after, I want to feel happy. Listen, I understand this. I've said this to you guys before. I'm more interested in me being fed, obviously, and comfortable and, 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 and okay every day than anybody else. It's usually the object of my, of my brain every day to make myself, listen, my buddy's here from work. At about 11 o'clock, I've been talking about lunch for at least a half an hour. Like, <laughs> I'm very interested in being fed every day. I'm very interested in my own happiness. But we seek that in superficial things. And I'm not talking about the superficial. I'm talking about underneath. Because being blessed isn't what happens to you. It's who you are. Does that make sense? Being blessed isn't something superficial about what happens to you day in and day out, of, of which you have no control. It's about where your allegiances are. It's about who you are. It's about what's underneath. And there's folks just looking for it in all sorts of crap. There's people looking for happiness in all sorts of debauchery and all sorts of things. And, and, and in life, they're like chaff with no roots, and wherever the wind blows, that's where they go, and their life is being taken all over the place, and God is saying, if you want to be blessed, you got to dig down deep into the word of God and, and into his law, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, and that's how you are fundamentally changed from the inside. It's about your allegiances. It's about who you are. It's not about what happens to you. Amen? And this is a good psalm. Where are the roots of your life? Take a look at 1 Peter 1.6 with me. You know what's funny? Is I got my Bible up here, but it's going to be quicker with my phone. Isn't that ridiculous? Drives me easy crazy. <laughs> it's right here. 1 Peter 1.6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at that passage. Isn't that great? Listen to this. Verse 6. Again, in this you rejoice that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It, it, it's, it's about the difficulty that draws this rejoicing, that draws this joy. I love it in James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's, it's like that runner that's trying to get better. You need resistance. It's like those of you that work out. <laughs> when you do that, the resistance produces in you an endurance, an ability to go further. And so you can, you can count it joy when you encounter various trials because you realize that this testing, that this difficulty, that this resistance in your life is producing something in you that's genuine, that's real, that's fundamental. Amen? That's what God's calling us to. For a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by trials. Deep joy comes in deep distress. You really don't know joy without deep trial or difficulty in your life. It's not circumstantial, it's real. Amen? This is, 
This is the moment your root reaches for the streams of life deep down underground when you're going through these difficulties. Tim Keller says this, happiness is not brought about by controlling your environment, but by your allegiances. It's not brought about by controlling your environment, but by your allegiances. I have to ask you this question, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Something else that's a mistake that we make is we seek this fundamental happiness, we seek happiness directly. It becomes the direct desire of our heart. And that is the quickest way not to find it. You want to be happy, stop seeking happiness. You want to be happy in your life, stop going after that. Because the word of God says you need to go after him. Amen? You need to stop seeking it directly because if you go after happiness as the complete objective of your desire in your heart, you're never going to find it. You're never going to get it. In the word of God, in scripture, it's always a byproduct of seeking him. It never says in the word of God, blessed is the man who seeks after blessedness. It never says that. Blessed is the man who thirsts and, and desires righteousness. Blessed is the man, or, or how about this, in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Amen? God says you need to go after him, and happiness is a byproduct of it. And what do we do? We, we say that we believe in God. We say that the word of God is what drives and directs our life. But it's really not. And listen, I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you. Our happiness drives us most of the time. Unless we make an intentional effort to, to live by the word of God through his grace, we are driven by our happiness. Why do you lie? Why do you cheat? When you say you don't believe in lying or cheating or stealing, why do you do it? Well, I don't believe in lying unless it's going to cost me my job. And then it's okay, because I want to be happy. I don't believe in cheating unless it's going to make me happy in this moment. Listen, if your sole objective is to have a happy marriage, guess what you're not going to have? A happy marriage. Your sole objective needs to be with your spouse seeking the kingdom of God, living to outserve them. Listen, I am much happier circumstantially, superficially, when my wife does things for me. But when I live to outserve her, when I live biblically to lay my life down for her, as the Bible says. We always get caught up in the marriage verses where it says the, the woman should sub, submit to her husband. Read the next verse. He's supposed to live a life that lays his life down for her. Everything about his life gets second place compared to her. And he's supposed to live in such a way that she gets what she needs and that she lives in such a way. Listen, when I live biblically the way that God asked me to, guess what? My marriage has changed because my object is to serve God. Not because I want him to make me happy, but because I owe him everything. And then the byproduct of that is a happy marriage. If your whole soul object in life is your career, what happens when that blows away? Your life's over? What happens when you, if, if your soul object in life is to have a happy career and to be successful, what happens when it doesn't work out? How are you dealing with the stress of trying to control that environment in your job? One of my best friends for the last 25 years, when we started Missio Church years ago, lost his wife. 
with his four kids under 10 years old. If the sole object of his affection was her as much as it was, as opposed to driving down into God and worshiping him and serving him, his life could have been over. But I watched a man walk through incredible difficulty, pain. Listen, didn't walk around with a fake smile saying everything was okay because it wasn't okay. Watched him cry. Watched him go through difficulty, but something deep down inside of him dug deep into the life, into a stream that gave him life and the ability to be fundamentally okay because he knew who God was and what he had called him to and where he was going and he knew where she was. And I've watched that in action over the last several years. If your happiness isn't something superficial, it can be washed away. Amen? Can't be found directly. You seek happiness above all else, you won't find it. You shoot for heaven, you get earth thrown in. You shoot for earth, you get neither. God's called you to fundamental blessedness, which comes from his word. And listen, let me go back to that point that I mentioned briefly. You're not coming to God to make you happy either. Let me be clear. This isn't like, okay, you don't want me to seek it superficially. You don't want me to seek it circumstantially. So as I seek happiness, I'll come to God so that he makes me happy. That's the wrong context by which to approach God. That's not God. That's a butler, okay? If you're seeking the true God, if he exists, if God is real, then you're seeking the God that you owe everything to. You're coming to God like the prodigal son. You guys know that story. The prodigal son who took his inheritance, who took, took it early and left and squandered it and tried to live circumstantially happy and blew his inheritance and blew everything. And, and here he is laying, in, a, laying in, in mud with a bunch of pigs, trying to get some of the feed from the pigs so that he could eat because he's starving. Because all his friends blew him off when his money ran out. And he, and he has nowhere left to go. And he thinks to himself in the back of his mind, geez, my father's servants live better than I do. Maybe I could go home and I could just be a servant in my father's house. And if I go back home, maybe he'll just let me live in the servant's quarters. At least I'll get fed, and then I can serve him. And here comes the prodigal son, recognizing the, the extent of his own sin and his own offense towards his father. And he comes back in humility, and he says, Dad, I owe you everything. I blew it. Can you please at least just let me be a servant? And what did the father do? He said, get the robe. Put it on my son. Grab the ring. Put the ring on his finger. He reinstated his authority as his son. He said, Get, kill, the, kill the animals. Let's eat. Let's have a feast. My son has come home because the father had been waiting in the front yard every day that he was gone, praying that he would return, waiting for the day when the son would come back and he could reinstate him and be with his son again. If you come to the king as a servant, humble, recognizing your offense, he turns into a father. Amen? He comes to you and responds as a father who adopts and who gives you everything you don't deserve, his grace. Amen? We don't approach God like a butler. We approach him as the father that we owe everything to. 
And, and really, the, the idea isn't God. And you see Christians that do this, or folks that say they're Christians. They say, listen, I tried out the God thing, and it just didn't make me happier. I tried out the God thing, and it didn't work for me. Well, that's not the God thing. That's not God. That's some fake gospel that has nothing to do with the word of God. When you recognize that you've offended God, that you've sinned, that he came in his grace while you weren't even looking for, for him, and he died for you, he was the substitute for you, he paid the price for you because he loves you so that you could be his son, your only response says, God, I owe you my whole life, whatever you want me to do. God, I'm yours. I'm coming to you that way. And as you do that, as you respond with gratefulness and worship, he treats you like a son. Amen? How do we approach God? We owe him everything. So, so why are, you ask yourself, you know, I've heard this stuff a million times. I've been sitting in church my whole life, some of you. Why? Ask yourself this question. If you know it, are you fundamentally happy? And why not? I'll tell you why not. Because we seek it circumstantially. We seek it directly. We make it the non-negotiable in our life, happiness, instead of seeking first the kingdom of God. Amen? Psalm, Psalm 1 starts like this. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. So it starts out with don't, right? Don't do this, don't do that. And I, want you, I want you to ask yourself this question. What is it talking about here? To, to not sit in the, uh, among sinners, to not sit in the seat of scoffers. And when you see this language in the word of God, this idea of sitting with, really has less to do with do's and don'ts and don't do this and don't do that. Really what it means is it goes back to that idea we talked about of your allegiances. Who do you belong to? When you sit among people, these are the folks that influence you. These are the folks, they're your people. They're the people that you have uh, aligned yourself with. And the word of God is saying, listen, you want to be a blessed man, don't sit with sinners, don't sit with scoffers, but, but delight yourself in the law of the Lord. There's a dichotomy here. There's a comparison here. Think about it. When you sit on something, when you sit with something, you really put all your weight on it, don't you? When you sit in the chair that you're sitting in, you're relying on that. It is where your weight is. And this idea of sitting among scoffers has to be with your allegiances, has to do with the things that are influencing your life. And I, and I got to ask yourself, as we talk about this idea of being a blessed people, you need to ask yourself, where are your allegiances? Where are you putting all your weight? Where do you sit? With sinners and scoffers in a life of circumstantial pursuits, superficial pursuits? Or do you delight yourself in the law of the Lord? And it goes back to what I said before. Are you putting all your weight on your career? Are you sitting in that seat? Are you putting all your weight in a person like your spouse? Are you sitting in that seat? Are you putting all your weight in leisure? When can I get a vacation? When, I, when can I get somewhere warm? When can I spend the rest of my life chasing a white ball? Is that really the object of your life? Are you putting all your weight in that seat? Or is it something bigger, something deeper? Are you delighting yourself in the law of the Lord? And I love the way the psalm 
puts it because it's delight. It's this idea, it's poetry, it's a song, it's, it's emotional. Do you delight, do you play the song of the gospel in your life? Do you interact with it? Does it seep into your life in such a way that something fundamentally changes in your life? And, and, and lest we make the mistake, the law of the Lord here, this isn't about the section of scripture that has the do's and don'ts in it. It's really about the whole counsel of God as he's revealed himself in the word of God. It is ultimately the center central message in the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is delighting yourself in the whole range of God's instruction in the word of God, in the law of the Lord. Really, it's speaking of the Psalms in this context. Do you delight in it? Do you play it like a song? If you're not Spending time asking yourself how God, through his word, has revealed himself and designed you to live your life. You're not delighting in the law of the Lord. Folks, we got to get into the word of God together. In the moments when our perspective is shifting and our minds are, are occupied with all sorts of stuff out there that tells us what to do and how to do it. Spend 10 minutes on Facebook and everybody's got an opinion about everything. If you're sitting in that seat, you're not going to be blessed. We need to be delighting in the law of the Lord. The full range of instruction of, of who God is, how we relate to him and how we relate to each other. Can I tell you, if you're able to do that, as you do that, you're going to find your life begins to have, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what happens outside of you, something down deep, fundamentally blessed and happy. Amen? In verse 6, it says this. Verse 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And I gotta, I gotta ask the question: What does this have to do with Jesus? Because I think we recognize in this passage something. Look at Psalm. The Psalms are uh, are filled with the idea that that we're not righteous. Psalm. I think I wrote it down. Hold on, I'm sorry. Psalm fourteen three: No one is righteous. Psalm one thirty three through four. Psalm 32, 2, speaks of the fact that we are not righteous, that we're incapable of righteousness, that we're incapable of living up to the standard of God. But what do we recognize in this psalm? Where do we get our righteousness from as we look at the whole instruction of Scripture? Jesus. Amen? The reality is, Jesus came. The central message of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation is that Jesus came. And he lived the righteous life that we were incapable of living. And then he became our substitute. He became, as the word of God says, our propitiation. He got up in the seat. He got up into the mercy seat, into the altar on our behalf so that we don't have to. And he experienced the judgment and the wrath of God on our behalf. You ask yourself about wickedness and righteousness does God mark iniquity? Does God count sin? 
Does God require perfect righteousness in his holiness? Of course he does. He marks sin. He, He went after iniquity, and he satisfied perfect righteousness, not in you and me, but in Jesus. Jesus, as we see in Scripture, that we get to delight in, became our substitute and died in our place so we don't have to. The reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the psalm says, is that we are incapable of living lives righteousness that match up to a holy God who's perfect. And because he's just and the justifier, because he's a completely just and holy God, and at the same time he loves us recklessly, he loves us without abandon, he loves us based on our performance, he is love and he is justice. So how does that happen? How does that reconcile itself? He made a way. He came and Jesus lived the perfect life and satisfied the justice. He lived the life none of us could live. And then in the moment as we see on the cross of Jesus Christ, he becomes the most despicable sight in human history as he becomes sin for all of us. All the sin from Adam to the end of the world that saved up the judgment of God for sin because he's a just God was poured out on Jesus. So it doesn't have to be poured out on you and me. Amen? He paid the price for us. I think about this every day. When are things going to be made right? I happen to live in a world vocationally, as my friend does, where we see injustice to such a degree that that it causes rage. And I ask myself, how do I live in a world where I watch children tortured and and abused sexually and physically in such a way that it causes rage in my life. How does this ever get made right? How does there ever justice? Because the criminal justice system really doesn't give us justice. How does this ever get made right? And the reality, the reason I can reach down into something beyond circumstantially what I'm seeing in front of me, into something that causes joy and confidence and an understanding is because of the word of God. Because I know he makes it right. God makes it right. Because he's a just God. And and thank God because of my own sin and my own mistakes that he judged it in Jesus. So that someday when I die, I stand before God and he doesn't see all the stuff I did wrong. He doesn't see all my screw-ups and mess-ups. He looks at me and he sees Jesus. And I get to be with him. I get to be in eternity with him. Not because of anything I did, but because of what he did. Because it's finished. And I get to delight in that every day. When stuff goes wrong all around me, and I see the mess of this world, I get to drive my roots down deep into the life-giving reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I can't fix it, but he did. Amen? He makes it right. And he did it in Jesus. And I got to play that reality. Every day in my life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's really what fundamentally changes us. It's not anything we get circumstantially. It's the fact that he loves us. Amen. I could go on all day. Let's take a moment and think about that. And we do this every week. Because we forget don't we? So let's play and delight in the law of the Lord right now together. And let's think about the fact that Jesus' body was broken for me and that his blood was spilled for me. And him recognizing, him recognizing that we would forget often. He said, listen, as he stood in front of his disciples and picked up the bread and broke it, 
said, guys, I'm about to do something that's going to blow your minds in a couple weeks here. So remember, as I break this bread, that this is my body that was broken for you. As I pour this wine, as I pour this cup, remember that my blood was spilt for you because he was about to serve mankind by paying for the sin of the world on the cross. So let's remember together this morning. Stand with me and let's pray. God, we thank you for what you've done and our hope and our prayer is this morning that regardless of circumstance, regardless of what's happening around outside of us, that we recognize we're not in control of, regardless of that, you fundamentally do something in our hearts because of your gospel, because of the law of the Lord that gives us the confidence, the ability to know that we can truly be fundamentally blessed and happy in you because of what you've done. And we come to you this morning not to be made happy. We come to you this morning because we owe you everything. We come to you this morning because where else would we go? There is nowhere else to go. Jesus, we come to you because you are the only one who's paid the price for us. We come to you this morning because you are the God of the universe and you are real and you are true and we recognize that you are the one where there's life. You are the one, you are the stream that we can plan our lives by. And really, God, we recognize this morning in your word that you've planted us there. You've planted us by the bank of that river where we can draw life from you. Help us to stop looking for life in superficial, warped things. Help us to stop looking for joy in circumstances and in things that really only temporarily fulfill us, but help us to draw life from you. And central to that, we recognize this morning that your gospel your body that was broken, your blood that was spilled on our behalf gives us that capability to approach you, to be with you, to be in that place of joy, regardless of circumstance. And so this morning we remember, and this morning we're grateful and we worship you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.